first we'll read Proverbs 15, verses 6 through 10, and then we'll pray. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befall the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. Father, teach us to receive from your word everything that you uh, would have it do. We know that you've promised to reprove and to rebuke and to correct and to encourage and to strengthen, Lord. And so we ask that you would posture us to receive these things from your word, Lord, that we might uh, receive of the, the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ who instructed us, who instructs us even now through his word. And he continues to intercede on our behalf and ensure that all of the gifts which he has won come to pass to his own. And so we do ask, Lord, for that portion of humility and meekness as we come before your word to receive the implanted word unto the salvation of our souls, Lord, that you might continue to enlighten the eyes of our hearts uh, to understand the excellencies of our portion, Lord, which we have now in earnest, wonderfully partaking of the ministry of the Spirit, and good hope, Lord, for the future as we look forward to the consummation of the age to come. We ask, Lord, that you would attend your people with your blessing as your word is preached. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Sermon text is Psalm 63, if you'd like to follow along. This is God's word. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life my lips will praise you i will bless you as long as i live in your name i will lift up my hands my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food my mouth will, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when i remember you upon my bed i meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Everyone wants to be strong in a trial. The thought of enduring a difficult time and ordeal 
with poise, dignity, wisdom, grace, even benevolence, kindness. Well, it's certainly attractive. I trust you can see the attraction of that prospect. I trust you've even earnestly endeavored after it. We esteem soldiers who can keep their wits about them in the fog of war. In Little House in the Big Woods, there's a scene where Ma and Laura suddenly meet a bear. And Ma's courage and quick thinking and Laura's immediate obedience are all lovely to see. But as anyone who's been in a trial can tell you, it can be terribly disorienting. Or as that great theologian boxer says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> All the preparation and the training oftentimes give way to the mystery of the moment. Whether it kicks in or whether it all slips away and something else entirely takes over for good or for ill, such things are strange. And scripture is plain that that is what happens. Man plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. Psalm 63 is a song of confidence. David is in an ordeal, a trial. And in that sense, it's similar to a lament. Lament is perhaps one of the most common, if not the most common genre in the Psalter. But unlike a lament, perhaps you heard it, there's a tone of strength, confidence, undergirding David, as he's very honest about his ordeal. And that confidence, it sounds more like a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of thanksgiving being a commemoration of the Lord's deliverance experienced. You might argue that the song of confidence is near the height of spiritual attainment for the Christian in this life. Accosted by difficulty, aware of native weakness, but strangely standing nonetheless in a faith upheld and nurtured by God's promises. And we could say the mysterious and hidden work of the Holy Spirit in the shadow of your wings, I take refuge. The only divine bird I meet in Scripture is the Spirit who's pleased to manifest himself or to reveal himself in the form of a bird, the dove descending on Christ, the Spirit hovering over the face of the water, the hidden power of God, like the shadow of a wing. There's no strange <laughs> There's a lot we can learn from this psalm about the source and supply of our confidence in this sad and difficult world, which will continue to be sad and difficult. But we should also see that this song is the song that Christ sang, that our king was nurtured in his humiliation by the promises of the Father. And in this way, he accomplished our redemption. 
He has walked the way in which he now leads us. His life has purchased us from a different way altogether. And by his shepherding and care, he now leads us in the way of the cross, the way of faith, the way of difficulty strangely endured by a mysterious power. And so not only did Christ purchase our redemption as he walked in this way, he also sets for us a beautiful example of how we are to strangely partake of strength, although beset without, with great difficulty, and within, by great weakness. And so let's consider this song of confidence, a truly remarkable height obtained in faith. How did David obtain it? I have five observations. They're not all as long as my usual observations. First, fully aware of difficult circumstances, David sets the Lord before him, not his circumstances. That's how the psalm opens. It's striking. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. He fills his entire vista, not with a desert, but with his God. He sets the Lord squarely before him. This is an interesting season in David's life. He seems to be fleeing from Saul, as the superscript suggests, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, a psalm of David. So he's been anointed by God. He's been told that he's going to be king. God has declared his love for him. He has promised to exalt and establish him. All of this was revealed and confirmed and sealed to David in his baptism, anointing. Yet this is the future. The present is all lowliness and difficulty and uncertainty and a wasteland. You can imagine how difficult that would have been for him. David's humiliation. You can read about it, how he roamed about like a vagrant, how he was despised by the inhabitants of the land. He does pretty well, and then he almost ruins it. Nabal offends him, and he's like, nope, that's it. I'm done. You're dead. Blessed Abigail intercedes on his behalf because it wasn't the time of exaltation. It was the time of lowliness. God is pleased to bring his beloved low. There's a strange paradox that sits at the heart of the Christian faith. Our election is our exile. Joseph, low. David, low. The beloved son, low. God's people, low. And yet still before us, our God. That's what David declares. His eyes look to the Lord. Oh God, you are my God. I will earnestly seek you. This is not the halls of kings. This is a wasteland. And oh, incidentally, the king is trying to kill me. And yet I seek you, oh Lord. You know what you're doing. Even if I can't see it by the physical eye. 
I will earnestly seek you. I will not seek a change in circumstances. I'm not seeking a way of escape. I am not seeking a new timeline. None of those things are my hope. You are my hope. You are my God. It's amazing that David's greater son, in a manner even more wonderful, kept his father before him at all times. His whole life was one directed father word. I came not to do my own. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I don't seek glory from you. I receive it from the Father. The Son of Man came in obedience to give his life as a ransom for many. His climax at the cross when in his last moment, even there, the Father filled his field of vision, though deranged faces were in front of him. What does he say? Into your hands I commit my spirit. The vision of the Father eclipsed even the field of hate which had fallen upon him as far as man was concerned. Peter explains to us what he did. In Acts chapter 2, what did he do? He sang a song of confidence. It wasn't this particularly song of confidence. It was Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, Peter tells us. That Christ sang, for he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Christ sang the song of confidence and was nurtured through the ordeal of the cross because God's promises are true, beloved. They communicate a reality that is more certain than even what the eye of sense can take in. We use everyday speech like this, right? Keep your eye on the prize. What do we mean by that? Keep your eye on the prize. It means that difficulty, opposition, distraction is all going to come at you when you're pursuing a goal. And unless your eye is on the prize, those things are going to derail you. There's wisdom in this. Paul says something similar when he says, seek the things that are above. Keep your eye on the prize. Stunningly, it's a person and a place, although the place part's tough to get my mind around. I'm not going to lie. But the person part isn't, because we've seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's remarkable to me that we know very little about him in his state of glory, such that even in his state of exaltation, he would have us know him as the one who is gentle and lowly. I trust you're processing that. Seek the things above. You might as well be saying, set your mind on Christ. Because in setting before us the person of Christ, we set before us our goal, our end, the one into whose image and likeness we are being transformed now and will be in full when we see him face to face. Our goal is a person, not just with him, but as sons of God like him.
fully aware of the difficulties of this life, beloved, set the Lord our God in Jesus Christ, made known to you in the riches of grace and mercy, squarely before him. He is your end and your end. Second, David insists that though circumstances are difficult, true satisfaction, even now, comes only in God and not in a change of circumstances. The physical difficulties of life in the desert press upon David and provide an interesting window into a deeper need, namely communion with the true and living God. David says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David had many basic needs during this time, water, food, shelter, all of them were uncertain. He's roaming about a desert, they're all uncertain. Nonetheless, he perceives a greater need even still, communion with the true and living God in his fatherly favor. For strangely, this is better than the richest feast, better than all sustenance, enjoying an active sense of God's love. David sings, because your steadfast love is better than life. That's quite a line. Your steadfast love is better than life. My soul will be satisfied as with rich repast. Choicest feasting. David had dined at Saul's table. The riches of the king's meat, the king's wine. And yet he saw that these things were as useless to satisfy as the rock and the sand of desert. Our Lord would insist upon the same basic truth as he rebukes Satan. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Paul seems to say something similar when he says, for me to live is Christ. We weren't made for meat and wine. We were made for fellowship of the most intimate kind with our Heavenly Father. It is to our great shame that we prefer meat and wine to this extraordinary end. But in Christ, our wits are restored. Tis the season of feasting. All the feasting that you're going to do in these weeks, they cannot satisfy you. I trust that you know this. Because as wonderful as they are, they're going to be gone as soon as they begin. It was Thanksgiving yesterday. That's what it feels like. Fleeting, swift, passing, relentless. They can't satisfy. It's not that they're not good. It's that they can't satisfy. They don't last. Instead, let every particular taste of God's goodness, even creation goodness, meat and wine, let it remind you of the good God whom you now belong to uniquely and who has opened to you treasures richer still. Namely, the beloved son. Intimacy 
with our God of the profoundest nature. This brings us to the third observation. He draws upon the riches that he has tasted in public worship. David actively draws upon the riches that he has tasted in public worship. That's what David's saying. Indeed, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. This is verse 2. Indeed, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Exit Cypher family, everybody back at the text. Indeed, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. That's not what he currently beheld. His eyes currently beheld a barren desert. Certainly attesting a certain terrible power. God's creation still, yes, but a threatening iteration of it. Quite literally, it threatens human life. Such a pure and unadulterated power is brutal to the fragility of human existence. God must make his power known in a far more accessible way if it is to be life for us. His power is on display in the desert. It just isn't life for us. But David had known the gentle revelation of the mercy seat. To be found only in the sanctuary. Where it wasn't just a brutal and raw portrait of power. It was power extended to those in need in the form of mercy. And such was a place for weakness. So he reflects upon beholding God's power and glory and steadfast love that had been pressed upon his heart as he drew near intimately in the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God and grace. And those moments were some of the plainest revelations of God's fatherly love for his servant. And here in difficult circumstances, though he was very much prevented from entering into that particular revelation, he recalled it. The truth thereof had been emblazoned upon his heart such that he could derive benefit from it, even removed from an active experience of it. He's drawing upon those excellent confirmations of love. What nurtured him in the wilderness was not recollections of Saul's table, but of the Lord's table. Even as a child, the Lord Jesus was drawn to his father's house. Luke 2, 49. Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Doubtlessly, he drew upon those times to help him in his trial in the barren land because he cites worship as he rebukes Satan. Matthew 4.10, Away from me, Satan, for you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Forty days he was alone in the wilderness. 
not in the sanctuary. And yet, the truth of who his father was, is, will always be, sustained him there. Each week, the Lord prepares for us a table, refreshing us in the confirmation of the welcome that he has established for us through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fatherly provision and protection that he ensures have freely passed to us to be taken hold of and rejoiced in through the empty hand of faith because we bring nothing else to the table, beloved. We bring our sin to the table, beloved. (laughs) That's pressed upon our hearts there, isn't it? It's the death of Christ which confronts us And yet it is the love of Christ which confronts us as he willingly dies in the stead of sinners and sustains the life that he freely gives. Beloved, this is what nurtures us in the wasteland. As we does week in and week out as he then sends you out for six days into the wasteland. But perhaps in... In his fatherly wisdom, there's a season where you're providentially hindered from public worship. I pray you're storing up for yourself, even now, confirmations of his love, confirmations of the welcome, confirmations of the promise that he will provide, he will nurture, he will sustain the life that he has caused to dawn in your heart and bring it to completion until the day of Christ. These things remain true even if we're kept from the public gathering for one reason or another. At the same time, right now, we're not kept from the public gathering, so don't neglect the public gathering. It's not incidental to your life, beloved. It's the table of feasting he lays for us in the wilderness in the presence of our enemies upon which he sustains us, not upon a scrap, but upon a feast, namely communion with him, welcome at his table, peace established that surpasses understanding. Approach the public gathering with earnest expectation to be nurtured upon the means of grace. Cherish them as we freely have access to the household of God. Nobody hinders you, beloved. You gather without concern with our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember when we couldn't? Remember how awful that was? It was a barren way. Forth, he fills his most vulnerable moments with rehearsals of his God. He fills his most vulnerable moments with active rehearsals of his God. In verses 6 and 7, David sings, I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. Everyone knows that the dark of night And sleepless hours are some of the loneliest and most vulnerable that we spend on earth. We are strangely vulnerable in those times to our fears 
and our doubts and our anxieties and our concerns such that they batter us about like a tempest slapping a rowboat. <laughs> Have you had this experience? David fills those times specifically with thoughts of his God, who his God is, and the kindness he has extended unto him in days bygone. I remember you on my bed. I meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings... I will sing for joy. Even the shadow of night can be transformed into the shadow of the wing. In whose presence there's comfort and peace. I think this is perhaps the greatest value for committing scripture to memory. Memorizing creeds. Memorizing the catechisms committing hymns and psalms to heart. Sure, you can get up, go get scripture or a hymn book or a book in general in those moments, but better by far is being able to summon them from the mind and pray that the Lord would cast his gentle illumination upon the soul desperately in need of light, warmth in those moments of vulnerability I've mentioned before how when I was living in Ukraine, some of the more difficult times came at the end when I accidentally fell in love with Samantha. And I wanted to be near her, and I couldn't. And so I would take the letters that she had written me, and I would just read them over and over again to be reminded of the one whom I loved and whom I longed to be with. A more intimate and mysterious fellowship opens up as we bring God's truth to mind because it's not just thinking about him, it's actually thinking with him. There's a nearness there that takes place, again, through that hidden power and presence of the Spirit. He is near, and we are aware of it by faith taking up God's word, taking him at his word, because that's what faith does. Martin Luther invited us to pray the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments, filling out those general lines with particular praises and requests and confessions and thanksgivings, and he said, you'll never lack anything to pray, ever. This is why we catechize our children to provide the spirit with the riches from which he brings the brilliance of faith, hope, and love. Trading on that light image there with brilliance. Not genius, brilliance. Our Lord himself spent long seasons of prayer through the night. Those most vulnerable moments he filled with most intimate fellowship. I've mentioned this before. I'm feeling it as an increasingly old man. Sleep is becoming more and more elusive. I don't understand it. 
I found filling those times with prayer, meditations upon God's word. There is something lovely about it. Though it doesn't expel exhaustion, I will say that as well. Our Lord drawing upon the fellowship which he enjoyed by the Spirit with the Father, even during his earthly ministry, reminds us once more what he has won for us, namely calling upon the Father with the same Spirit. Abba, Father. This is the cry of Christ towards the Father. This is the cry that issues forth from our hearts as those who have been given the Spirit. And thus there is a bold and confident access to the Father of grace and mercy, not just in public worship, beloved, but wherever and whenever your soul draws near in faith, looking to God's promises. And so it's no surprise to me that David abounds in hope, even though he has no earthly reason to. And that's the last observation. David rehearses his hope, the triumph of God's saving purposes for his people. That's how the song ends. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. David abounds in confidence towards his God, not because signs of victory are on the horizon. He's a nomad. <laughs> The reason he abounds in confidence is because God is his God and all of his words are sure. And God has promised to establish and exalt his servant in due course. It takes a little while for David to get there, but he gets there. As he's rehearsed the excellencies of his God and the certainty of his promises. <clears throat> David invites us into good hope, though we have to walk a hard road to get there. Because I think we first need to see ourselves not in the king, but in those who sought to destroy his life. Those who seek to destroy my life, may they go down to the pit. This is the portion which should have come to those who sought to destroy the life of the Christ. For our sinful opposition, we should have been brought down into the depths of the earth. We should have been handed over to the sword. We should have been the portion of jackals, beloved. I trust by now you can see that Christ as example is not sufficient. It's wonderful, yes, but Christ as redemption is what we must him above all else. Christ as one who stood in the stead of those who deserved to go down to the depths of the earth. Christ as the one who went into the depths of the earth for us, beloved, to lead us forth in hope, to lead us forth in life, to establish us in the kingdom of light. This is what David's greatest son did as he pled on behalf of those who sought to destroy his life. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. In this staggering declaration of love and mercy, we find our hope as those desperately in need of love and mercy 
And it's in this hope that we are nurtured as we behold not the cross as the end of the story, but the resurrection and the ascension, such that the train of captives which Christ leads is through the cross unto glory. In many ways, it's easier for us to abound in hope than it was for David. For even though we're in a barren land where nothing can satisfy, even though we're waiting for the restoration of all things, we live in the light of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We live as those upon whom the Spirit has been poured, who have been sealed with the earnest of our redemption. If David could sing with such confidence in his God, how much more we, beloved, who have been given the greater portion, stunning. To week in and week out have set before us, yes, with more simplicity, but with far more efficacy, the unfailing love of God and his purposes of grace and favor towards sinners in the redemption of a people to the praise of his glory. May the Lord grant us all the song of confidence in all the days of trial which await us as we make our way through this barren land unto our heavenly home. Father, sustain us on your word. Nurture us even now. Teach us to earnestly desire the pure spiritual milk upon which you feed us for our journey through this strange and foreign land. As we know, we are not at home, but we long to be at home with the Lord. We long for him to return for us. And we see in this our full hope, our good hope, our living hope. Purify us, O Lord, in this day. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.